All right, so we are in week number 21 of the year of discipleship. We have been in um, this personal Bible reading plan that we're calling the F260, Foundations 260. Again, if you haven't joined us, I want to encourage you to jump right in with us. Week number 21, uh, Bible reading plans are over at our Next Steps area. You can also find it at friendshipwire.com slash 2022, the year of discipleship. We're in this series called... Kings and kingdoms, and what we've been seeing is that in, in the Old Testament here, the nation of Israel is in this divided kingdom. So there's these, this northern kingdom, which is made up of ten uh, tribes uh, called Israel, and then there's these southern two tribes called Judah. And between these two kingdoms, there's 40 kings over the span of time, and most of them are bad or evil or corrupt kings. And there's a handful of good ones, but most of them are poor. And during this time, God raises up prophets. And, and we see that in the book of First Kings, which we've kind of been in here these last few weeks. And, and so I want to ask the question as we kind of set up this sermon today is, who are the prophets? What were the prophets all about? And this is really important for us to know, to set the context for what we're going to see this morning. And, and really, they're so instrumental in, throughout the Old Testament in the history of, of Israel. Uh, prophets were key figures in the history of, of Israel, in the nation of Israel, uh, very prominent. They, they spoke on God's behalf. So spokesmen uh, for God. They would uh, prophesy or they would tell forth the truth of what God had to say. And so they were kind of like old school preachers, all right? So the prophets, they, they would call people to follow God. And much as a, a preacher would do today, their role was to call people to repentance, right, of their idolatry or of injustice. They would call people to follow the Lord. And in this time of the kings, when there were so many corrupt, evil kings, God would use these prophets to try to hold these corrupt kings accountable. And so God used prophets in such a major way in the life of Israel. And today we're going to see this really dramatic, incredible confrontation between one of Israel's worst kings, King Ahab, and one of God's most prominent prophets. And we're talking about the prophet Elijah. And so this morning, the title of the sermon is, Are You a Fence Walker or Fire Caller? All right, and we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 18. But I want to take a few minutes to set the scene for this because this story that we're going to see today, uh, if you're familiar with it, or maybe if you're not, this is, this is such an incredible, incredible story that I'm, I almost don't want to preach it too much. Uh, I don't want to mess it up. You know what I'm saying? It is so good and so powerful that we just need to see what God is saying and figure out how that applies to us. And so um, I'm going to take a few minutes to set the scene because I think we need to understand the characters, the players in this scene if we're going to get the full impact of what's going on in this story. So let's talk about the characters. Who was King Ahab and his wife Jezebel? All right, so we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 16. I just want to read a couple verses to kind of set the context of who King Ahab was. All right, he was the son of another king, Amri. So 1 Kings chapter 16, verse number 25, it says this about his father, Amri. Amri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. So his dad was not a good king. He was evil and did more evil than all the kings before him, verse 26, for he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
And in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. And so he was not a good king. If you skip down to verse number 28, it says, And Amri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, so you see the context, the family line. Amri, this evil king, did worse than any other king before him, more evil than any other king. And then along comes Ahab, and it says down in verse number 30, it says, And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, catch this phrase again, more than all who were before him. Okay, does that sound familiar? His dad was the worst king of all, did more evil than anyone, and then here comes his son who kind of takes it up, other, up another notch, and he does worse than even his father. He's even worse. And then to, to make things even worse, verse 31, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Okay, he's following this long line and of sin, sinful kings. To make it even worse, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. All right, it's never good when God says, okay, you, made, you went from bad to worse by marrying this woman, right? Jezebel. And we all understand the term Jezebel. I mean, that's even understandable in 2022 in our culture. We know Jezebel is an immoral, corrupt woman, right? But this is where that name comes from. So King Ahab and Jezebel, and he, he did more evil than all the kings before him. And it says here that he, he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So I want to talk a second about Baal. What is, what is this Baal? What is this God that Ahab and Jezebel worshipped? Well, let me read a couple quotes to you about who Baal was. So John MacArthur says this about the word Baal. It means Lord, husband, or owner. Baal was the predominant god in Canaanite religion. He was the storm god who provided the rain necessary for the fertility of the land. Now keep this in mind because what we're going to see is that Israel goes into this long period of drought and famine. And so Baal, this this predominant God for the Canaanites was the storm God who would bring fertility to the land. The worship of Baal was widespread among the Canaanites with many local manifestations under various other titles. So every kind of region had their own version of Baal, their own version of this God. The worship of, of Baal had infiltrated Israel long before the time of Ahab. However, Ahab gave it, gave it official sanction in Samaria through building a temple for Baal. As David had captured Jerusalem and his son Solomon had built a temple for the Lord there, so Amri established Samaria and his son Ahab built a temple for Baal there. So what we see here is Baal was the god, the pagan god of the people at this point. I want to read another quote from gotquestions.org, just to, again, give you more context about this God that this King Ahab is worshiping, says this, according to Canaanite mythology, Baal was the son of El, the chief God, and Asherah, the goddess of the sea. Baal was considered the most powerful of all gods, eclipsing El, his father, who was seen as rather weak and ineffective. The Canaanites worshipped Baal as the sun god. And again, here's this phrase, the storm god. He is usually depicted holding a lightning bolt. Okay, so pay attention to that. We'll come back to that later. All right, the storm god who is depicted holding a lightning bolt who defeated enemies and produced crops. 
They also worshiped him as a fertility God who provided children. Baal worship was rooted in sensuality and involved ritualistic prostitution in the temples. At times, appeasing Baal required human sacrifice, usually the firstborn of the one making the sacrifice. The priests of Baal appealed to their God in rites of wild abandon, which included loud ecstatic cries and self-inflicted injury. So are, are you getting a picture of this pagan God? Like evil and corrupt and there was sensuality and prostitution and human sacrifice and this was the pagan god that King Ahab was worshiping and that he set up a temple in order for the people to worship. So, so there was kind of this almost downward spiral or progression that you see with, with a lot of these evil corrupt kings in Israel's history. So some of them would start out by worshiping the Lord but in their own way. Not the prescribed way, the way that God said to worship him. So they still worship the Lord, but they did it in their own way. And then other kings began to not just worship the Lord in their own way. They began to worship other gods. They began to worship pagan gods. And then we come along to Ahab, who not only worships this pagan god, Baal, but he commands the people to worship this pagan god, Baal. And he sets up a temple and, and all of these things in order for the people to worship this pagan God. And so this is really important for us to see in the context of this story, who King Ahab and his, his uh, immoral wife Jezebel were. Now, there's another player in the story. All right, we talked about Ahab. So the next question is this, who was Elijah? Who was Elijah? So let's talk about him for a moment. Elijah was one of the most prominent prophets, and him, it was him along with his disciple, Elisha, who comes along shortly here in 1 Kings. And they were prophets to the northern kingdom, these 10 tribes of Israel. And I want you to see in the next chapter, 1 Kings 17. Again, we're just setting the stage for what we're going to see here in a few minutes. In 1 Kings 17, we're introduced to Elijah, this prophet. And it says in verse number 1, Now Elijah, the Tishbite. That sounds like something that would sting, right? Ow, I got a, did you get a Tishbite? Okay, sorry. Uh, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So in, in the very first verse we see Elijah, this prophet, introduced. He's predicting there's going to be a drought in, in all of Israel. Right? And, that, and that we see that play out. And as you work through chapter 17, it's kind of like a movie where it's setting the stage and we're getting introduced to this character, Elijah. And, and we see in this chapter that God um, feeds him and provides for him by using ravens to bring him food. And, and then as you move through chapter 17, he uses a widow uh, who doesn't have much food left and he uses her to provide for him. And, and then that widow's son dies. And Elijah cries out to the Lord and it says that the Lord hears him and revives this widow's son and brings him back to life. And what God does through this is God is showing his power through his prophet. He's validating who this man is. In fact, if you go to the last verse of 1 Kings 17, verse 24, it says this, the woman, the widow said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And so here's what we see all through chapter 17. This 
prophet comes on the scene. And he is without a doubt a man of God. And God is working through him and showing his power through him. He is legit, all right? And so here is Ahab, here is Elijah. And then we come into chapter 18 and the confrontation comes here in chapter 18. So I want to just kind of, again, set up the scene here before we jump into what we're going to see ultimately this morning. Verse number 1 and 2 of 1 Kings 18 After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. All right, so this is the third year of the famine in the land. And God says to to Elijah, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So year three, they're in the third year of this famine. God speaks to Elijah, and he says, I want you to go and see the king, King Ahab. Now, as you work down through chapter 18, we get some more backstory on how how hostile Ahab and Jezebel were to the people of God. It says that Jezebel had murdered uh, many of the prophets of the Lord. And so this command from God to Elijah, which, which you find out in the story, he was the only prophet of God left And God says, I want you to go to King Ahab. And so you can imagine there might have been some fear and trepidation. I'm the only one left. And this regime has killed off all the prophets of God. And now you want me to go to King Ahab. And yet we never see a sign of indecision or fear on the part of Elijah. He goes straight to the king. And as you drop down in the story, you see in verse number 17, Through 19, it says this, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? In other words, aren't you the one that kind of cursed us with this this famine, this drought that we're in the midst of, you troubler of Israel? And he, Elijah, answered, he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. We didn't even talk about Asherah, this this other pagan goddess, but here is Elijah who comes in and there's, there's agreement between Elijah and Ahab. There's, right, there's trouble in Israel, but what they don't agree on is who is the one who's caused the trouble. Ahab says, you're the, you're, you've brought all this trouble on us. And Elijah says, no, 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 no. You brought the trouble because you have taken the people away from the Lord to follow Baal. And so... Here's the showdown. This is setting up the scene for this confrontation where Elijah says, I want you to bring all the people of Israel to Mount Carmel. And I want you to bring all 450 prophets of Baal. And I want you to bring all 400 prophets of Asherah. And we're going to have a little come to Jesus moment here, right? We're going to have a little meeting time here. And so this sets the stage for what we see in 1 Kings 18, verses 20 through 40. Y'all, this story is so amazing, but we have to understand the context of who Ahab was, who they were worshiping, this false god Baal, and here comes Elijah, who represents the one true God. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of read through this story, and then we're going to figure out how this applies to us. So 
the first thing we see is this. The audience is established. So look at verse number 20. Who's the audience in this story? First Kings chapter 18 says this. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah, Elijah came near to all the people and he said, okay, so let's stop there. So I want you to see the audience in this, this little showdown. Remember, Elijah said, I want you to gather all the people, all the prophets come to Mount Carmel. And we see here in this passage, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel. Verse 21, and Elijah came to all the people and said, so who's the audience? It's all the people of Israel, right? All the people. This is who Elijah is addressing at this point. All of the people. So the audience is established. The next verse here, what we see is Elijah challenges the people. Elijah challenges the people. So verse number 21, it's a, he goes on to say this. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And so Elijah challenges the people. Hey, how long are you going to, here, here's how we would say it today. How long are you going to walk the fence? How, are you, how long are you going to ride the fence between these two opinions? The way he says it is, and I love this, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Have you all ever, like, had a limp at some point? Like, maybe you hurt your toe or your, your, you know, your ankle or something, and you were kind of limping along. Some of you, you've got, like, a perpetual limp, right? You're a little gimpy. You're getting up there. Um, he says, how long are you going to limp between these two opinions? I'm going to get there soon, all right? No shame and all that. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? That word limp, here, here's what it literally means. To hop from one place or another. Also to be lame as one who hops on one leg. So it means there's no strength. There's no power. You keep kind of like... You're wishy-washy between these two opinions. You're limping from one to the other. And, and this word, he says, between two different opinions. And we, under, we understand what an opinion is, but literally it means a divide or, or a fork. Right? You all understand a fork in the road? Um, as my daughter Blakeney's growing up, we have this thing when we're driving where we're like, hey, there's a fork. And so now she always goes, is that a fork? No, that's just the exit ramp, honey. Okay, so is that a fork? So a fork, obviously, is when you, you have to choose, right? You can't just keep going. You have to go left or right. Choose one way or the other. And he says, how long are you going to continue to limp between these two different opinions? you got to choose. you got to pick a way to go. And, and what Elijah was saying was, people, you need to get off of the fence you need to choose a side. You can't stay in the middle. And, and y'all, this was, this was the real confrontation right here. This was the confrontation. It wasn't, it wasn't Elijah versus the prophets, really. That wasn't the real confrontation. It wasn't even, if I may be so bold as to say, it wasn't even really God versus Baal. Because that really wasn't even a contest. The real confrontation was like this moment of like self-confrontation. Like, who are you going to live for? Which side are you, are you for? 
if, if God, if he is the Lord, follow him. But if Baal, if this other God is God, then go after that God. Stop riding the fence. This is the moment of, of real confrontation, the self-confrontation with this question, who are you going to live for? And so Elijah challenges the people. And then I want you to see that the people fail to answer. The people fail to answer. So Elijah challenges the people. The people fail to answer. As you finish up verse number 21, he says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. All right. So what was the response? Crickets, right? Nothing. No response whatsoever. Why, why was there silence? Why was there no response? Why did they not answer him a word? Because they had hard hearts, right? They didn't know. They didn't know which, in this moment, they didn't know who to choose. They didn't know which side to pick. And so as we move on, Elijah challenges the people. The people fail to answer. So Elijah moves on. Elijah challenges then the prophets of Baal. So let's check out this challenge that he poses to these prophets. He says, starting in verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. So we're each going to set up this, this sacrifice. Verse 24, and you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I love that. It says, you call on your God, I'll call on the Lord, all right, because my God is the real God, the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Sure. Okay, we'll go along with this. So here, here is the challenge to the people. Whichever God answers by fire, he is the real deal. All right, you following along here? Here's the challenge. Each of us set up our sacrifice. Whichever God responds, um, that is the, one that res the God that responds by fire, he is the true, the real God. So Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal. But just like the people, the false gods fail to answer. There's no response. And we see this starting in verse 25. It says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Okay, you get to go first. I'll let you go first, all right? Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal. Uh, and again, that, the word Baal means Lord or owner or master. And, and what we know is this, this was a counterfeit Lord that they're calling upon. It says, call upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. See that word again? Interesting, huh? They limped around the altar that they had made from morning until noon. They're crying out to their God, Oh, Baal, would you answer us? Verse number 27. 
Man, I love this. I love the sense of humor of God and his people. At noon, Elijah mocked them. All right, mocking's typically rude, um, but Elijah, go for it. This is awesome, okay? Elijah (laughs) mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he, maybe he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I love this scene where Elijah is just like, hey, hey, don't stop me. Maybe he took a potty break, all right? Or maybe he has a little trouble multitasking. Maybe he fell asleep and you need to wake him from his slumber. Keep trying, all right? And so like, Elijah like milks this for all it's worth morning until noon and Elijah's just kind of sitting over in the corner twiddling his thumbs and he's like all right uh, well let's give you the rest of the day keep going keep keep going keep on going okay so verse number 28 and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them Verse 29, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, until the evening offering. But, listen, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so Elijah challenged the prophets, but there was no answer. And we see it says there was no voice. No one answered. They limped around the altar. There was no strength. There was no power. Elijah mocked them and until the evening. And they were calling upon this God, Baal. And I don't know, maybe I read too much in this stuff sometimes. But, uh, but I see in this, in this uh, lack of response, there's three no's in verse 29. It says there was no voice. There was no answer. No one paid attention. And I don't know, just in my mind, I think the way that God works, this was kind of like God's way of saying like, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the one true God exists in three persons and here's three times that this false God doesn't answer, has no voice, no one paying attention. Like it's clear that this God, the reason that this God did not answer was because this God was not real, right? He didn't exist. In fact, Jeremiah puts it this way, Jeremiah 10.5, talking about idols and false gods. He describes it this way. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do, God, uh, to do good. The reason they don't respond is they don't have the power to even respond because they're like scarecrows. They have to be carried around because they can't walk. So don't be afraid of them. So Elijah challenges the people. The people fail to respond. Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal. The false gods fail to respond. They fail to answer. There's only one that answers in this passage, in this story, in this scene. You know who it is? It's the one true God who answers. Now, I want to read verses 30 through verse number 40. As we see this play out, it says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. I love this. He waits, he waits until the evening. From morning to noon, from noon to evening, Elijah's like, All right, it's time. Let's do this. Everyone gather around. A show's coming. All right. Verse number 30. Come near 
to me. Then he says, all the people, it says, all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar to, uh, in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now remember, they're in a time of famine. They're in a time of drought. And he says, I want you to grab these four pots full of water and, and, and pour it on the burnt offering. And not only the offering, but pour it on the wood. And verse number 34, and he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And for good measure, he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, the evening offering, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. You see the prayer of, of Elijah. He says, Lord, would you answer me? Answer me. And what does the Lord do? He obliges, right? He answers him. Look at verse number 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And so the one true God responds. He answers. And what I love in this story is how Elijah when he, when he goes to make the offering, he, he takes all these like very deliberate steps to connect this moment, this scene, to the overarching story of God. Because what he does is he takes 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and he sets these up, and he gets his offering ready, and when he prays to the Lord, did you see how he started that prayer? He said, oh God of Abraham and God of Jacob, God of Israel, or God of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob. He, he, he connects the story all the way back. The story that we've seen unfolding throughout these 21 weeks. And Israel will be your name. You are his son. And he's connecting all of this back to the one true God and his purposes throughout time. He, he's, he's talking about the ancient of days is what Daniel calls the Lord. He's praying to the everlasting father is how Isaiah addresses him in Isaiah chapter nine. 
He's what Paul later on would refer to as the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only true God in 1 Timothy is how Paul said it. He's connecting this story back to the one true God who was from the beginning and who was and is and who is to come. And, and I love this because Elijah, he made it impossible. He made it impossible for the altar to be ignited outside of an absolute miracle, right? He drenched the offering. He drenched the wood with four pots three times. He drenched it. He filled this trench full of water. The only way that this altar was going to be ignited is by an absolute miracle, right? This is why he went to such great lengths because there would be no question that the Lord was God if he set this offering on fire. And what you find is that the prophets of, De of, of Baal, how long did they cry out to their God? How long was it? All day long. And what kind of answer did they get? Nothing, right? We read the prayer the petition of Elijah. How long do you think that prayer took? I don't know, maybe a minute, right? And how quickly did God respond? Boom, right? The fire of God fell in a moment. And, and this Baal, this God, this storm God, who's depicted as having a lightning bolt in his hand, right? If anyone could respond and ignite this altar, it would have been a storm god, right, that has the power of lightning in his hand, right? But what did that god do? Nada, right? Who responded? The god who the Bible describes is as a consuming, what? Fire. He is the one who responded. The fire of God fell in this moment. And you know what? He even licked off his plate, right? He licked up every last drop of water because he wanted to be, there to be no doubt that he was the God of the universe. And so he responded in kind. Our God is a consuming fire. What an amazing, amazing story. I, I just feel like this story um, to me, in my mind, of out of the miraculous, amazing things that you see in the Bible, this to me may be second to the resurrection of Christ. Like, I just think this is such an amazing story, how God shows up, how fire falls from heaven. But I want to take a moment as we kind of begin to wrap this up here this morning to like talk about us. All right, what is this? How does this apply to us? This is this incredible scene that takes place in the life of Israel, God proved himself. He showed up in fire. But here's what I want to just take a couple minutes to consider. I want to consider the fuel for the fire. The fuel for the fire. What was the reason for this whole display? All right, and I want to look at verse number 37. I just want to go back and see this prayer of, of Elijah. In verse number 37, he says this. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. Why? That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, 
and that you have turned their hearts back. Here is the, the fuel for this whole fire. It was that the people would know without a doubt that the Lord was God. And that in knowing that he was the Lord, that they would turn their hearts to him. Now, here's the deal. God didn't put on this incredible display of his power to impress everyone. As impressive as it was, right? I get so wowed by this, like, man, God brought the fire. Like, man, he showed up and he proved himself powerful. Listen, God didn't show up in fire and power to thrill us or to impress us or these people. You know why he did what he did? It was to convince them that he was God so that he could have their hearts. Don't miss that. The goal wasn't for everyone to walk away going, "Woo, that was incredible. God brought the fireworks. The point of the whole episode was that so God could have their hearts. So they would stop following these false, dead gods. That was the reason for all of this. Let me say it this way. The fire of God falls in power so that the people of God will fall on their faces in faith. This is the reason for the fire falling. Not to, again, put on this impressive display to wow us, but so that he could grab hold of people's hearts. This was his desire all along. He reveals himself in power not to wow our socks off, but to grab hold of our hearts. You know the reason that you stay on the fence? It's because you don't fully believe that he is the Lord. Because if you truly believe, if you believe that he is the Lord, the one true God with everything within you, you cannot stay on a fence. You're gonna pick your side. You're gonna jump onto his side. This wasn't an issue of indecisiveness. Like, which way do I go? No, this was an issue of heart. What do I really believe? Because if I believe that he is God and every other God is false and fake and powerless, then I will get off the fence and I will get on his side. Amen? This was the issue. It was an issue of the heart. The reason you hesitate, the reason I hesitate in anything in life is because you're unsure, right? Should I... Should I do this or that? Should I eat Chinese or should I eat Mexican? Should I go left or should I right? Should I take this job or take that job? Should I move here? The reason we hesitate on things is because we're just not sure. We're not certain. Because when you're 100% sure about something, you run after it. Listen, y'all, over 22, it was 23 years ago, when I realized that, that Annette was the woman that God had for me, I stopped riding the fence going, uh, does God want me to be with her? When I figured out, when I was 100% sure she is the woman for me, I ran after that. I ran after her. I didn't go limping. Right? 
When you are sure, when you are certain about something, you don't ride the fence. You don't limp between two opinions. You choose. You pick your side. You run after it. And if you look at your life, y'all, if you look at your life today, and if you've been a fence walker, here is the question for you today. The question for you to ask yourself is this, do I truly, fully, with all of my heart, believe that he is the Lord? If I do, I've got to get off this stinking fence. And I've got to get after this God who has rescued me and redeemed me and has given his life for me because he is worth all of me. Amen? I'm going to stop riding this fence And I want to end with this passage that I want to read from you in Revelation chapter 3. The words of Jesus as Jesus was writing these letters to the churches. And this is something that that is going to be future. Jesus writing to the church of Laodicea. And he says these words, verses 14 to 20. I just want to read these words as we close. Jesus said this. It says, the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. These are the words of Jesus himself. Verse 15, I know your works. He's writing to the church. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, this is how you live. This is what you declare with your life. I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not even realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus says, I counsel you. Here's what I counsel you, you to do. You that think you're rich, that you need nothing, but you don't realize your real true condition. Jesus gives us this counsel to buy from me gold refined in the fire. If you were here last week, you remember talking about wood, hay, and straw, those things that are going to burn up rather than gold and silver and precious stones. Jesus says, invest yourself, buy from me gold refined by fire, things that are eternal so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see He says, come to me, is what he's saying. He's inviting us to to him. He says this, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I'm not getting on your case because I hate you. I'm getting on your case because I love you. And he says this, so be zealous and what? Repent. Turn from your way. Come to me. I'm inviting you to come. Maybe you've been walking on the fence. Jesus says the same thing to the church as Elijah said to the people of God. Be hot or be cold. But man, don't be lukewarm. Don't don't walk the fence. Either be all in or go a different way. And so y'all, don't make it complicated this morning. It doesn't have to be complicated. In the words of Elijah... If the Lord is God, follow him with all that you have within you. Be zealous and repent. Fall on your face 
before him and he will receive you. He will get you off of that fence. He will show you the way he will lead you and he will show you the way to prosper and experience success. Amen. I mean, this, this story is so powerful. Uh, I think it's so important for us to know. Um, and yet next week we're going to do, um, we're going to follow this up with 1 Kings chapter 19, um, which is a story that happens immediately following this. The big, you know, the big bang, the big, sh- this is the real big bang, all right? This is where it takes place, is where God shows up in 1 Kings 18 in a big and powerful way. And yet next week I think it's just important for us to see that Sometimes God shows up loudly. Sometimes he shows up quietly. And so next week, uh, I know some of you may be out for Memorial Day, but I want to encourage you to be here as we look at 1 Kings 19. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what we've seen in this story. Lord, we see your power. We see you revealing yourself from heaven in fire. God, what an amazing God that you are. And yet, Lord, would you help us to be honest with ourselves, help us to be honest with you this morning about where we're at. Lord, if we have been walking this line, if we have been riding this fence, God, I pray that this morning would be know a stake in the ground where you would help us to be zealous and repent that we would walk away from that way of living this half-hearted following after you God that we would recognize that we would realize that you have given us all of yourself and in return God may we give all of ourselves to you So, Lord, thank you for the opportunity that you give us, the grace that you give us to recognize where we're at. And if we need to turn, if we need to choose, if we need to step onto your side with all of our hearts today, God, you have given us this moment and this opportunity and your grace to do that. And so, God, I pray that we would respond in faith and obedience today. Thank you and we'll praise you. And-